what's coming down the road. Well, I'll be. Oh, boy, a new chuckwagon. Belly up to the chuckwagon. It's airwaves full of bacon. The Chicago-based food and restaurant podcast by me, Michael Gebert. James Beard Award-winning food writer and video maker for the Chicago Reader, Serious Eats Chicago, Thrillist Chicago, and more. Two and a half years ago, Philip Foss hung up the keys for his food truck. He took the truck on the road again for one day recently, and I tagged along as we talked about the food truck life from a pioneer's perspective. Chicago Magazine just released its list of the 17 best new restaurants in Chicago for the past year. Jeff Ruby has been one of the reviewers picking them for a number of years, and we met up, incognito, to talk about the list, the year, and the food scene as a whole. And finally, I dug up something from the archives. Actually, it may be the only thing in the archives I didn't use to record my interviews. But a year or so ago, I interviewed TV personality Nigella Lawson for Grub Street. And now seemed like a good time to revive the very interesting chat we had about why Italian food rules the world. That's all in episode 10 of Airwaves Full of Bacon, good buddy. The Smokey and the Bandit of Food Podcasts. What are we going to do with Paul? Yeah, they're just not going to be able to happen. So we'll just mail him a card and some booze. Yeah, there you go. Mail him meaty balls. We, so we can't, we can't mail him meaty balls. That's disgusting. If you're not from Chicago and don't already know the history here, this story is going to seem a little convoluted. Not to mention improbable and, oh, by the way, occasionally obscene and not safe for work. So you've been warned about that now. It involves a chef, Philip Foss, who is, at the moment of recording, a semi-finalist for a James Beard Award for Best Chef Great Lakes. That's for a fine dining restaurant, L Ideas, which grew out of a food truck, the Meaty Balls Mobile, which he and his girlfriend, Akiko Mormon, are loading up with meatball sandwiches today for the first time in two and a half years. They'll be handing out sandwiches downtown and then delivering some to Foss's fellow Beard Award semifinalists at restaurants like Next, Nightwood, and Elizabeth. We begin in the Meaty Balls Prep Kitchen, which became L Ideas, on a low-rent industrial street on the near south side. So tonight, this afternoon, uh, we are doing a promotion with the Meaty Balls, just kind of a thank you to Chicago for all the success that we found here at L Ideas and obviously priorly with before that with the meaty balls mobile and we were sitting around one night and you know it had been so long since i've been out on the truck we were just talking about it and the beard announcement happened i was like you know none of this would be here if it wasn't for meaty balls and you know this crazy little food truck idea that was born you know from conception to being out on the street in literally two weeks time and it's just, it's been such an unlikely experience. And to see the casual concept turn into a fine dining concept, you know, we've had great accolades, obviously, with Michelin now, we're seeing a star. And now with James Beard, you know, a semifinalist, it's just, it's, I just have to sometimes just take pause in, you know, a little bit of disbelief that I am where I'm at right now. And, people of Chicago are the ones who have made that happen so you know we turned kind of 
the thought was, okay, maybe I'll just take the food truck out and then turn it into like, let's just give it away as a thank you. Celebrate with everybody. Yeah, exactly. We're going to make, uh, I think, six stops planned. We put it out on Twitter, you know, where people want us to stop. Merchandise Mart, uh, which, you know, all places that used to be with a truck, the Tribune Tower, um, Aeon Center, the Loop, West Loop, and then University of Chicago has been uh, really hitting me up hard, so they're going to get a, a special visit today as well. How many tickets do you expect to get today? Um, seeing as how <laughs> I'm not selling anything, it's, it's debatable, but uh, at least one. At least one. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be proper unless you got That's at least true. one citation right. from the city of something, Chicago. Something you know, it, something to at least to ruin my the sales for my entire day. But luckily, I'm not selling anything, so it, it'll be even a worse <laughs> case scenario here. Was it traumatic getting back in the truck? The, that's been the exciting part. The trauma has been just the build-up to it. And, oh, my God, i got to set up for a restaurant tonight. And how am I going to get all the work done for the sandwiches as well? The meatballs are a pretty high-labor food truck operation. But luckily, the, you know, I was planning on going out originally yesterday. Luckily, the weather turned out to be absolutely horrendous. So I managed to postpone it for a day, and having that extra 24-hour buffer just made it completely relaxing and much more enjoyable of a uh, proposition. We walk into the garage where the truck is warming up. This is how it used to go down here in the morning, get in like 5 o'clock in the morning, after a security parking spot, mind you. You know, and a secure parking spot downtown Dearborn and Monroe, and then drive take the bus back to the restaurant this was like five o'clock in the morning you know come in get preparations going then we light up the truck here uh, it's, got, it's, it's based off of propane and just a regular kind of oven like you'd have at home and you see the steam starting to wear off taking starting to warm up slowly so by the time we're taking off at about 11 everything should be nice and hot and okay we're good to go so long since I've done this. I mean, like, it was 2011 I shut it. There were two and a half years since I've been out on the street. And I mean, like, I've got my ball jokes all, like, back in my head again and ready to, like, discuss everybody in the city. <laughs> like, our mission statement to uh, get our balls, balls in the mouth of every Chicagoan has just been rekindled. What's uh, kind of funny here is, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend, she uh, bought all the t-shirts and then we realized that, she didn't realize that my truck was actually one of those food trucks that you don't stand inside of. I'm a New Yorker. She's a New Yorker. Uh, besides that, most food trucks are stand inside variety. <laughs> I've always preferred being outside. And away from, you know, I actually prefer moving around than being sucked in the truck. Food trucks, you stand inside and you serve people out of a window. The, that is a food the truck. The definition of a food truck is a truck that has food on it. <laughs> well, you and your Chicago regulations, I mean, I'm sorry. New Yorkers, I'm used to people cooking on a truck and then feeding people via window. Don't knock my city. <laughs> Didn't you get that legislation passed? Yeah, actually, now you can cook on trucks. But you still can't park anywhere. 
but I understand that they're taking truck and parking away in New York, too. Yeah, honest to God, I never see food trucks. I mean, not that I'm downtown yeah. that much, but I am once in a while. Where I've never seen you know, You know what the new but ordinance has done? It has just allowed people to have, like, to spend even more money on a business model that just simply doesn't work. That's what you like. Now you have the potential to lose more money because now your truck is going to cost even more because if you're going to retrofit it for. Not if there's not parking. There's no parking. There's no place to put the truck. I think it's a, a silly argument that if you think that a food truck is something you're going to harm your business, you're not in the right business. Yeah. But, if, but look, everybody's entitled to their the opinions. I understand the concerns of restaurants because, hey, you know, you've got a business that you got to take care of. If you make good food, people are going to crave you and they're going to come to your restaurant, number one. Number two, you also have the benefit of a roof over your head. And I don't know if anybody's gone through this winter in Chicago, but that is an asset. That is an undeniable asset to have a warm place where people can come and eat your food without having to wait in the line. Well, do you, and you, like, took the worst of the winter off. What's that? You took the worst of the winter off. Didn't you? Here in the restaurant? No, I mean, in the food truck back in the day. No, are you kidding? I was out there, I mean, there was one day where I was out in, like, 20... Like, it was, like, minus 10 below wind chill or something. And all the other, you know, at that time, it was just Maroney and I on the truck, his gastro wagon. And he shut down. I'm like, no, you know, we're here for the people. And I sold out, you know. I made a ton of sandwiches, and people came out. Chicago's are resilient. Chicago's can handle the cold. And, I mean, meatball is cold weather. I struggled more in the depth, the, the deep summer than I did in the winter. When it's way too hot, like who wants to eat a hot meatball sandwich with uh, 120% humidity and 120 degree weather, you know? Well, for the most innovative food town in America. Yeah, our, our food, cult, food truck culture needs kicking the ass, but that's got to come from the... Yeah. There's not one here, really, to speak of. I mean, there's, it's, it's a great camaraderie that is there with the food truck, food truckers that are out there, and it's nice to see some of them that have really lasted since I was out there but I don't know the culture of it is just really different here in Chicago than it is in other cities you know we've had the law against it for so long that you've got to actually reverse something that is completely outdated I then you've got things going on in, in like San Francisco where you guys get up like 10 food trucks together and go to a park and mm-hmm. park in a circle when the city was excited about it a couple years back when the, there was a lot of talk about the legislation that sort of thing was happening now it, it just isn't happening. It, I, I'm not paying too much attention to it, but there aren't, I don't know about any food truck summits, do you? Yeah, I'm sure. This is, we're there now. One of the most exciting and fun things about having a food truck is being just completely obnoxious on Twitter. I, every, I'm already good at that, but it's part of. It has to be part of your business. No, it does not have to be. You're For a personal choice. as a You're food truck. A personal lifestyle choice that not everybody has to recognize. 
it's got to be part of your marketing strategy in a food truck. If it's not, nobody's going to know where to find you. I mean, I don't know how food trucks used to operate before social media. Yeah, how Strangely, do people, they did. Yeah, they would always have to stay in the same place so people could find them. They went to the same, years. exactly, that's exactly how it yes, worked. Yes, people also used to go to the movies in groups before cell phones, but you know, it, did, it did happen. I mean, you're old enough, you should remember. I'm just going to ignore that. A little after 11, the three of us squeeze into the truck and we head from the kitchen to the first downtown stop near the merchandise mart. Beautiful thing about that kitchen is really the proximity to downtown. I mean, I know it's a weird place for everybody to go to, and cab drivers always you know, will ask their customers twice if that's really where they want to go. Sometimes they don't won't drive down. Yeah, the sometimes street. they won't even drive down the alley. A lot of cab drivers will come in and ask for a menu. Uh, no. Yeah, there's a cab driver who, when I, I said, "What is this?" I'm like, "It's a restaurant." He said, "Oh, I thought you were going to rob me." <laughs> and I was like, I'm five feet tall. <laughs> like, is that? I was like, I don't. Know, I was impressed That's with epic. myself. That's epic. So how awesome would this be if like nobody at any of these stops? What are we gonna do? Feed homeless yeah. people? Homeless people, exactly. <laughs> A couple of people are waiting already. As Philip unpacks the truck, one of them notices the bottle of bullet bourbon tucked back there to share with his fellow chefs. Yeah, that's Ross. Sorry. Should it be for the first person in line? Could be, it could be. I like your style. All right, guys. Who wants meatballs? I want meatballs. All right. And we got three flavors today. We got uh, buffalo, uh, the original meaty, and then barbecue balls. Just roll it around. Ball sack. I would love the ball sack. Well put. Well played. Thank you so much. Enjoy. Enjoy. I don't know if you follow. I don't, I don't, I gotta take that. That is nice. Awesome, thank you. Well, now you got it. Save the first for last. Regular meeting, you said? Enjoy, guys. Thank you very much. Hi, how are you? Nothing like standing outside. The romance of this is really uh, coming through to me. Yeah, we freeze our asses. Up. Yeah, it used to be horrifying when you'd show up for at stops and there'd be nobody, you know, like waiting, and you're just like sitting and staring at all your product that's already been made and all the labor that went into it, and there's nothing you can do about it, you know. Just hope somebody's going to show up for it. Philip's a little disappointed with the turnout at this first stop. We take off for the next location, near the Tribune Tower, which he hears is a good food truck stop, and find nobody. I would say there's a, there's a very thin line between 
operating a successful food truck and just standing outside like a fucking idiot. I, this is shocking. I like, I can't believe nobody's showing up. Don't, don't. <laughs> food truck culture is over. Yeah. I, this is Such like, this, I couldn't imagine that this would have been the case. I mean, you think everything's like exploding and uh, everybody's a lot of buzz about it, a lot of buzz about it. Well, apparently people aren't hungry. Or want to tweak food more than they want to eat. It. Right, exactly. Oh, what time is it? 11.15. It's finally afternoon as we pull into the third stop near Illinois Center, and at last we start to see a crowd. Thank you, good to be back. Our coworker follows you, and he just like jumps for joy. Uh, are awesome. you? Do we need cash? No, this is free. Cards? Okay, it's free. It's free. This is a good way to what? Oh my goodness! It's a way of saying thank you. We've had a tremendous amount of success since I was running around with the food truck. So you guys had the food truck and you're not doing it right now anymore. No, are you LA Diaz? Yeah, LA okay. Diaz. One day only thing, right? One day only thing. Uh, Thanks a lot. Guys, enjoy. Thank you. You have fans. Thank God. I mean, it would be, I, I would just be completely demoralized. So totally kill the buzz from getting, what's up, Angus? How are you? It's even better at the next stop near Monroe and Wells in the Loop. There's a good number of people waiting, and a steady stream continues to arrive as Philip stands there handing them out. What's up, guys? Hey, Everybody, some meatballs? Yeah. I got balls. I heard you got some balls. Oh, that's what they say. That's what they say. We sell these sandwiches. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. I decide at this point that I've gotten everything my story needs, and I put my gear away and start to look for a cab. Right as a parking enforcement van pulls up and stops behind the Meaty Balls mobile. I pull my camera back out as unobtrusively as I can, and wait for the chance to record Foss's first food truck ticket in two and a half years. They walk up behind him and jot down the number of the car parked next to him and give it a ticket. They pay no attention whatsoever to the food truck parked illegally in the crosswalk, and after a moment, they drive on. As does Philip Foss, lone ranger of the lunch hour, into the sunset. By the way, Philip Foss did not get a Beard nomination for L Ideas, but you should eat there anyway. Check it out at elideas.com. So I mentioned that L Ideas is in a funny location on the south side, at 14th and Western. I recently co-wrote an article for Thrillist on things to check out on the south side, and that's something I love to do. There aren't many L Ideas down there, but there are a lot of places that offer you working-class food, along with a real taste for what Chicago used to be like. 
Just down the street from L Ideas on Western is Don's Humburgers, which is one of my favorite classic diners in town. Go there if you're craving American food like biscuits and gravy. Keep heading south, and at 24th Street and Western, you'll hit Taqueria Tayahua, Tayahua, I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's spelled T-A-U-A-H-U-A. Anyway, it's a very good taqueria, in an area where there really aren't that many. You'd think there would be, but there aren't. And speaking of street food, as we just were with Philip Foss, if you go a little east on 21st Street, near Damon, you'll find the Tamale Lady. Literally a pushcart with tamales. The sort of thing that supposedly doesn't exist here. But of course it does in Mexican neighborhoods all over town. I'll have links for those, even the Tamale Lady, in the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. And please, help out a radio show that, like the Tamale Lady, is a one-person operation working the streets just for the sheer love of feeding a hungry audience. Subscribe at iTunes, and tweet this episode to your friends if you like it. If everyone who listens got a friend to listen, I'd have a lot of new listeners. Half of what's published about food these days is lists, but few of them really impact the business. One that does is Chicago Magazine's annual list of the best new restaurants in Chicago, which comes out every spring. When Goosefoot was named number one in 2012, it went from being a neighborhood place slowly growing an audience to instantly being booked two months out. Chicago's 2014 list is topped by Dusex, the Pilsen spot from the Longman and Eagle team, and includes other recent hits such as Nico Asteria, Tanta, Cicchetti, and 42 Grams. Jeff Ruby, one of Chicago's longtime restaurant critics, is one of four bylines on the article along with his boss Penny Pollock. We met up at a Roy Thai, Ruby traveling incognito as a professional reviewer, to talk about how the dining team puts the list together every year. We we start with Penny Penny Pollock, the dining editor. We start with her massive, like her database of all the new restaurants that have opened, like in the past in the past between March thirty first of the previous year and whatever time we're starting, um, and put little X's next to the ones that you know that sound like they're have some promise, and then we just go visit them, you know and. Back in the day, we could do every visit. We could follow it up with another visit. The reality is now is it doesn't happen that way anymore. It's just the money is not there, which seems patently unfair to the restaurants to go once, but it's like that's just the reality of it. you got to bring your A-game on a Tuesday night at 5.30 if you're going to be good. Um, so I'm sure some restaurants in the past have been left off the list because... They just happen to have an off night, um, which is kind of unfair, but that's that's the reality. And I, the guilt that I felt over that is is gone. Because well, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, and then turn the top of the list. They shouldn't have a a bad night if you're gonna be ranked number one or number two. True. Uh, you got you got to be that good every time. And the ones that are at the top of the list, chances are we've already been before we've started 
working on best new restaurants like I've been for my dining out column or Penny's been for whatever reason and we already know and they sort of they get the benefit of the doubt a little bit for being good um, not that we um, you know have lower standards for them than the other restaurants but it's certainly two visits to a restaurant if the first one was good and the second one's okay we'll probably round up so anyway yeah a lot of visits um, it was Penny and me and Carly Boers and a little bit of help from, from Carrie Shedler who's Penny's new assistant um, although that was mostly on the sidebars so it really was just Penny, Carly and me um, compiling the list and you know re- reporting back to each other and then you know, it's one of those things where if one person is going to all these, you can easily judge the restaurants against each other. But there's some fudging that goes on when, how am I supposed to say, you know, A10 measured up against Stella Barra if Carly went to Stella Barra and I went to A10? So you definitely, um, th- there's not a, there's no science to it, you know? So are you just in a smoke-filled room for 10 hours sort of... Uh, <laughs> You know, fighting it out over the last few, or there, there are a few um, meetings like that, but most of it. I mean, it's so unglamorous. Most of it's just done through like emails and lists, and you know, comments and sending each other our notes from visits and things like that. Um, the you know, I think if people saw how the sausage was made, they probably wouldn't think they wouldn't want to eat it. But. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I always tell people when they say how glamorous my ra- my life is it's like if I'm writing about Alinea the odds are very good that I'm eating Jimmy John's for lunch so. <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's my life literally uh, um, so uh, I mean it seems like I mean we've all <laughs> anyone who writes has made lists by now because that's all there are now is lists um, it seems like you kind of want to make make it make a point about what things are, and, and this year's was pretty pretty clear. You put do sex at the top and had a whole introduction about the dining was a lot more informal, the no tablecloth thing than uh, yeah. it's been in the past. Yeah, um, that definitely was a statement putting that there because in the past, I mean, and you you remarked in your comment on the reader that okay, it's. It's not exactly casual. It's casual compared to Grace, yeah. But it's not casual compared to Harold's <laughs> Harold's Chicken Shack, yeah. Um, number four or number seventeen. <laughs> but yeah, do sex. I mean, in in years past, and you've taken us to task for this. It really often felt like, hey, here's the twenty most upscale restaurants to open in Chicago. The ones that have the PR team behind them. Um, and, a and place, it was mellower, mellower this year. Yeah, but but this year we definitely saw that things really weren't necessarily like that on the landscape anymore. I mean, Dusex, of course, is owned by big names. I mean, it's the Longman and Eagle guys, so it's it's not like it's just Joe Schmo opening a restaurant. But um, you look at that menu and you compare it to, I don't know, a place that we would have had on our list like... You know, I think of, I don't know, Crofton on Wells was on the list the first year that I, in 1997 when I started. To me, that was like, that's what an upscale restaurant was like back then in 1997. And if you had seen the things that are on Dusek's menu on Crofton on Wells' menu, you wouldn't 
I mean, we would have turned up our noses at it probably. Right. With Chicago Magazine. By we, I mean Chicago Magazine. Or we would have we would have relegated it to some other list. You know what I mean? Some list that wasn't. Oh, these are the elite restaurants. These are the you know the slumming at restaurants or whatever. Well, yeah, because it's not only that it's kind of more casual, but it's it's really a it's a bar and it's bar food. I mean, that's that's the thing to me is is as much as fine dining has moved down, bar food has moved into that space and they've erased the lines between each other. And and yet, I mean, a restaurant like that can. You're exa- absolutely right, but a restaurant like that can also have. You know, what, like a Juicy Lucy burger and also right. have Matsutake risotto. I mean, you know, the average bar doesn't right. use the word Matsutake. <laughs> it's just a, it's a, it's a funny time. And I, and I think that that place is at the sort of nexus of a lot of different trends. And I w- it was one of those places that I was prepared to poke a hole in because everybody loved it so much. But it just won, it won me over so effortlessly, it seemed, you know. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I liked it a lot. I, I was a little surprised it came in at number one because I feel like it's still sort of working out the contrast between these things that are that are very high end. And I, I went with Anthony Todd, who said a couple of the dishes that we had had been plated even more sort of Graham Elliott ish than they had been the first time he had them. Huh. And at the same time, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the best things is that Juicy Lucy burger and stuff like that. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe that's maybe it contains contradictions and maybe it hasn't quite resolved them. I'm not sure. but Yeah, I mean, to me, it definitely feels like a restaurant in progress, which I think is kind of exciting, as opposed to Grace, which was like what it was right out of the gate. And, of course, he's, I mean, Duffy's a great chef, and that place will be working at a high level for a long time but I felt like I knew it from the very beginning and I feel like with a place like Dusex it's like changing so it's, it's kind of more exciting to me. Yeah well it's interesting yeah because I, I really felt that about Longman and Eagle too it's like it got better every time I went which yeah. is a nice thing and I kind of didn't feel that about a restaurant for a long time until Fat Rice came hmm. along and that too I mean I just felt like they were you could so clearly see that they were gaining skills yeah. each time so yeah I mean that is that is a really encouraging thing and I think at Fat Rice they didn't maybe they didn't know how good they were or they knew how good they were but they were su- somehow surprised when everybody else agreed with them and gained, <laughs> gained this confidence and then everything just kind of fell into place because it was such an unlikely restaurant and an unlikely place, and, yeah. and yet everybody loved it and still does. Do you think places get better? Do they get worse over time? Or what do you think tends to happen? I mean, I think one of the, one of the issues with a list like that is I see a lot of places that are really good restaurants after a year, at which point they don't qualify. It's, it's tough. I mean, you know, I... This is a really bad analogy, but I think of the band Ario Speedwagon. Which, okay. <laughs> like, I can't wait to see where this is going. But they had something like seven albums before they hit it big. And you think about it today, you can't. The, right. the music world doesn't work that way. You don't have seven middling albums before you hit it big. You just wouldn't exist as a band. And I think that restaurants today don't have that. Most restaurants don't get that luxury of time they have to be good out, out right out of the gate we have no idea maybe they've got deep pocketed you know investors whatever and can coast for a while and get better and better and better 
most restaurants don't really have that that chance. Well, I think it depends where they are, too. I mean, the list this year is very strongly oriented to downtown and Logan Square for fairly obvious reasons. Yeah. I mean, um, it surprised us just how many River North places there were. Yeah. We, we usually fight against that, like, because we know we're going to have to do that map and it's going to look weird if it's like, oh, there's nine restaurants, you know, within a three-block radius or whatever. Uh, but it's true. It's just true. Yeah, I mean, the... If it's good, it's good, and, and you have to have the deep pockets to be there, and those are the people that are using quality ingredients and doing it right, so I don't know. Um, now, the flip side of that, I think this is an, yet another flip side, uh, was the suburbs. Now, one thing I always thought was that you guys felt, because of your subscriber base, that you had to get the suburbs in there somewhere. And, you know, and a lot of times there are restaurants that certainly belong. I mean, Found was on it last year, and it did. Libertad was one I think I found because you guys reviewed it, and I think that's a really good place. Yeah. Uh, up in Skokie, the, the finest Mexican restaurant in Skokie. <laughs> um, but uh, this year... There was nothing. there's nothing from the suburbs. What what the hell happened to the suburbs? <laughs> it's it's a tough debate that we have every year about the suburbs. I mean, we certainly spent a lot of time driving to various places. It's not for lack of trying, but it just it came about. The list came about in the same way that you know the cream rose to the top. Thank in the you. past, every now and then there there would be. It would feel like lip service where we'd have two or three restaurants and they were suburban restaurants and I always felt like it was somehow more insulting unless they really deserved it. I mean, Found really deserved it. Libertad really, I mean, the places that we put on them on there deserve to be on the list, but I was always concerned about the impression that it was giving off. Um, and you're absolutely right. The subscriber base last I heard was, you know, something like 61% suburban, 30, 30, I mean, it could be way off, 39% city dwellers. So to not have any suburban restaurants in there feels like a huge oversight or a mistake, but it's, the reporting just did not bear it out this year. And we also, the editor-in-chief of the magazine has said... It is Chicago Magazine. It says Chicago. It doesn't say Northbrook Magazine. Um, it's for people who want to know about what's what's good in the city. And well, that, you think, do you think that's changed? That there people are more willing to. I mean, nobody ten years ago would have come from Northbrook to Logan Square to eat. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I've been living in the city for. 17 years, so it's hard for me to say. I don't know what the answer to that is. Uh, you'd have to ask somebody in Northbrook, I suppose. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think about ambitious chefs that try to do things in the suburbs and get and get shut down. I mean, not, like, shut down by their suburb, but the city, the people, I'm sorry, the people who live in that town speak louder than critics ever could. Right. You know what I mean? Like, well, what's, what's what the guy? Jo- what's, yeah. what's his name? Uh, John DeRosier. Yeah, John, yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Obviously. He was the poster child for that. And, you know, whether his food was good or not good was almost immaterial um, because everybody decided they didn't want it. Um, so, I don't know. I You know, I hate to paint with such broad strokes because, obviously, not every suburb is the same. It's not just... 
here's the city, and there's this great big expanse of, of places that are all exactly the same. I don't really believe that, but um, that said, we did do our reporting, and it didn't, nothing rose to the top. So what was your impression of suburban dining then? I mean, if, when you tried things that you thought might be candidates? Um, well, I think that a lot of it was um, not taking the same chances, not necessarily trusting that the diners would go along on an adventure with them. Yeah, I, don't, I can't think of things that opened that, that I would have... I would have thought about. I mean, you know, a bunch of things have opened in Evanston, but a lot of them are, you know, the new farmhouse that you've already had downtown and things right. like that. So it's just, I, I suppose it seems like the trends are being set in the city, and then there's the, there's followers in the surrounding areas. And again, this sounds so elitist and so horrible that I'm saying it, but I am a city, I'm a city dweller, and I that's that's kind of it seems like the, the truth. Yeah, I mean, all you can say is, if it's not true, prove it's not true. Open that great restaurant, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, Amy Morton and Nicole Peterson did, so it can be yeah. done. Yeah. But. And at least, uh, you know, once a month somebody says to me, hey, have you been to Found? You've been to Found? It's one of those places that everybody yeah. thinks they discovered and they, you know, <laughs> they, they all love it. It's a wonderful place. And I, can, and I can honestly say that that restaurant must have the highest percentage of happy people in it. You know what I mean? I mean, people were annoyed at first, I think, about the no reservations or whatever. But it's, it's just, I think now it's the, the staff is happy. This, the, you know, the bartender's smiling. The people who are there don't want to leave. It's just one that's got that rare sort of, yeah. I don't know. Although I, you know, I wrote a list for Thrillist of places to eat in Evanston. And most of the comments are, you know, we're basically, yeah, those are all like yuppie northwestern places. You know, if you want real Evanston places, you need Sarkis or, oh, you God. know, Custard's Sar- Last Stand. That's like, yeah. Sarkis. Those, those grease pits aren't on there for yeah. a reason, buddy. I think I just, just got a, a zit just hearing the name Sarkis. <laughs> I mean, the other thing for me, and, and this is hard because you, you are going into it without the benefit of PR telling you when things open, is ethnic restaurants and, and the little the little neighborhood things like that, which often aren't discovered by anybody till they may have been around for months, years, who knows. Right. Um, how, you, do, you do have one on there, which Goji, which I think is certainly deserving. Um, what... Uh, how do you deal with that? Do you, does anyone care? Um, yeah, we. You mean do we care on staff or do yeah. the readers care that we? You know, yeah. Don't? Uh, we definitely make an effort to try and get a wide variety of cuisine on there. Um, and when you go back to this, you know, the Excel spreadsheet of pennies that you know, is so magical, divided up into cuisine. If we go, oh man, we've got we're considering seven Italian places. We're only considering you know, two Korean places or whatever. It's there, there's I think for a cuisine that has um, less represented um, restaurants in Chicago, you definitely give them the benefit of the doubt for being a little more uncommon. And that's not to say that we lower the standards for, for a place, but 
we want the list to have a mix of, of different cuisines and different price points, which is a little bit, you know, that could be one of your, one of your next questions about the price <laughs> points. But um, goji, to me, is like an instant classic in that genre of the Korean barbecue. To me, it was just, you know, so much better than so many of those places that we've all said that we love for years without really thinking about, is this beef actually any good? Or is it just the experience that we like? And, you know, do we hold these places to the same high standards that we hold other places that serve beef? You know, I don't know. I just know that, that Goji seem to have all the pieces in place. And when we find a place like that, we are really happy to get it on that on the list you know partially so that i mean it gives us a little bit more credibility than just picking tanta you know uh, nico whatever um in the past we never would have done something like that yeah i think I i feel like years ago we had we picked somebody lobbied for a barbecue place in like the late 90s to be on that list and it and it did end up on there, and it just looked really weird in the pages. Well, you had Milts on there last year. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've made strides, but this was like before, this was when every restaurant that, that was on the list was upscale. Right. And I remember they shot a picture of a plate of ribs, and, you know... The, One of these things is not like the others. Yeah, it, yeah, it was exactly like that. It was so weird. And this place deserved to be on there, but it was... It was odd. It was an yeah. odd choice. Now, what about things besides restaurants? I mean, to me, one of the best things to open is Bad Wolf Coffee because <laughs> he's doing these amazing handmade pastries, you know, in quantities that come close to being personal chef level. And, uh, you know, there's, it's all, it's all sit-down restaurants on the list. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if we had more pages to play with, we would have a zillion sidebars or expand the list to something more ambitious than just a classic definition of a restaurant. Uh, as it is, you know, we've, we've been more pinched for space than we used to. It used to be 14 pages and, you know, now I think it's 10. It might, might have been 12 this year. I can't remember. Uh, but just getting a good number of restaurants. I mean, the write-ups are fairly short. It's hard to really delve into what makes a restaurant great when you've got a hundred words or whatever. So it's really painting with these these, you know, sort of impressionistic strokes, hopefully, to tell people why it's good. Uh, but then when you start throwing in places that, you know, don't even necessarily fit the definition of a restaurant, I mean that's the kind of thing that Penny and I would just throw up our hands at and say, like, <laughs> let's not even go down that path. Yeah. We'll write about it somewhere else. That's, you know, you can do four bakeries. You've, you've got to try now some other time. Yeah. Yeah. There's always room for another list. Yeah. <laughs> if I've learned anything. And people will always tell you you're an idiot for whatever you put on that, on that list. Chicago Magazine's Best New Restaurants issue is on newsstands now. Thanks to a Roy Thai, 4654 North Damon, where you really have to try the incredibly tart and pungent Tom Yum Soup with Beef Ball and Tendon. It'd be on my 10 best list anytime. time. <laughs>
Nigella Lawson is in the tabloids again. She was blocked at Heathrow Airport from boarding a flight to Los Angeles because she admitted using cocaine in the past. I'm sure we're all glad that our government is protecting us from people who threatened to teach us how to boil pasta correctly. Fortunately, when she was here in early 2013 for a book tour for her cookbook Nigelissima, there was no such problem, and I had the chance to interview her at the Four Seasons Hotel where she was staying for Grub Street. I'm sure she's media skilled enough to be a good interview with anybody, but I think she appreciated that I could care less about the celebrity stuff and actually wanted to talk about food. And we had a nice talk about the background behind Nigelissima and really all her books. How a girl from England became such an advocate for an Italian approach to food. You know, I think a lot of people in the Midwest, which is kind of a reserved place, fantasize about Italy as, you yeah. know, where emotion comes out and, yes. and all of that. Is that. And it sounded like that kind of happened to you in real life. Yes, you, because I come from a reserved place. You kind of came, almost yes. came out of the closet as Italian. I did, I did, I absolutely did, and I always feel that I was such a shy, reserved person that by, you know, and I went to Italy, and actually, one, you know, being independent, you have to speak for yourself, and also my personality changed somewhat, uh, and when I spoke Italian, I became more voluble and less reserved, and then when I came back to England, that relative confidence translated back into my native tongue so I feel it's rather changed I don't know whether it changed who I was or whether it my true self didn't find expression until I went to Italy now of course for me this is all put uh, for me I see it as um, an Italian experience but I can't overlook the fact that also it could be just to do with the age that I became, that obviously at 19 or 18 one is less tongue-tied and reserved and self-conscious than one is at 50 or 16. So it's a, it's a bit of both, but for me, my sense of becoming a person in a, is inextricably linked with uh, being in Italy and becoming Italian. Well, and, and Attempting all... to. <laughs> okay. And also... Um linked with Italian food, clearly. Yes, but my love affair with Italy uh, began um, as, as a fantasy romance before I'd actually gone there and eaten the food. So the food cemented the relationship. You know, had the food been different, you know, I could... Then, you know, perhaps it would have been just a teen romance, but instead, you know, a lifelong passion. But, the, but I think the food is really... It's, it's very hard to um, separate the food from the country or the, or the sense you get of being there because it has so many of the same qualities that it is so open and welcoming to all. I mean, it's not surprising that the whole world is enslaved because it's not a type of cooking that turns away foreigners or newcomers. It, you know, you don't... The, there's no mystique... It doesn't try and it doesn't try and and keep its methods or ingredients a secret. There isn't some sort of inner sanctum you you have to be ushered into. It's there. It's open. It's simple, but in the best possible way. It's not simplistic. It's just very simple. And also, there's something about the Italians I love because they're both. And this is quite a Midwestern thing, which is. There's, there's, an, uh, there's an earthiness and a robustness um, about the Italians, but what they, uh, 
marry that with is uh, a stylishness and chic which somehow manages to coexist with a, a total lack of pretension. Where if you had gone to France, they would have had to break you first and sort of rebuild you. No, well, and, and that's when, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in France because obviously it's, you know, very, very near where I live. Um, and the thing about the French is even if you speak moderately good French, uh, maybe this is more true of the Prisons than the French in general, but nevertheless, the French really enjoy making you feel uncomfortable and they will make a big point of not quite understanding you the Italians you can you can know one or two words and they will do absolutely their best there'll be a lot of sign language going on <laughs> they w encourage you when when this book came out in Italian in uh, last fall and I did my interviews and, and I did Q&A's in bookstores in Italian and every time I couldn't think of the word they'd be kind of egging me on he see, 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 see vieni, vieni, vieni and they'd try and they'd be throwing out suggestions of what word I might want and the whole thing was so warm and lovely um, that it's just a different it's a different attitude they, they they want you to enjoy they want you to share their pleasure whereas i mean it's so it, in a way generalizations are always deficient but i get the feeling that they want you to share their pleasure whereas the french are kind of working out whether you're worthy of it <laughs> maybe that's just my own insecurity no, and of course you know the english and the french have a long standing and mutual antagonism uh, whereas the Italians and the English have a very long-standing mutual love affair. Yeah. Well, yeah. I you know, think, since Byron. Yeah. Right. Well, I was thinking in France that you know the first thing you do when you arrive at a hotel is apologize for some slight that you had no idea existed. Yeah. Way, yeah. You know, I don't know. I always feel. I also. And also, I think in terms of the food, that you know, that, that French food. Um, and the French are very proud, and you know, rightly so, of their uh, of their sort of grand resto tradition. That the professional chef, those incredible geniuses and masters of uh, of the best restaurants, that's where French cooking finds its truest expression. And it may not be the case, but certainly that's how they present themselves. Whereas in Italy. No matter how illustrious the chef, he's never going to think his cooking is better than his mother's. <laughs> and, you know, Italians think that their cooking uh, really resides in, in the home kitchen. As a home cook, I am warm to that. Yeah. I mean, no one in Italy is going to make you feel bad about having poor knife skills. <laughs> Now, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, kind of a, a sympathy between Midwestern chefs and Italian food, because that's something that really went through this town, where people were using what they considered essentially an Italian approach. Go to the market, get the stuff, cook it mm. this way. And yet they were using Midwestern ingredients. But that's fine. I feel that's authentic. You see, what, what a lot of people call authentic, I call theme park. You know, you cannot in the Midwest of America or in London, um, you're not in Italy. You and I are not Italian. But um, our food can be informed and influenced by Italian attitudes, by what we may have eaten in Italy or in Italian restaurants. And actually, you know, it's like language. I mean, the, you know, the Italians, for example, have loan words. 
which the French reject. Right. You know, the French are very rigid about their rules about language and about food. It's all codified. Um, whereas, for example, you know, the, there's the English and American word for a bow window is in Italian, bovindo. <laughs> and so, in other words, food evolves, language evolves. Um, it's anti-evolutionary to codify it and say this is it cannot develop any further. So I think that as long as you don't say this is Italian food, I think that just as just the that I was talking to someone in Los Angeles the other day and she said you know, and she was talking about the authentic American Chinese tradition that it's not Chinese Chinese but doesn't make it inauthentic because you know Chinese settled in America and that's the food they cooked and in the same way that um, we travel more now there's the internet and it works both ways you know in Italy they're baking mu muffins like there's no tomorrow and I feel that influence um, can't be denied. I mean, I would never say this is an Italian recipe through and through, uh, unless I unless it actually uh, was. And even if it were completely Italian, I but if I'm not in Italy, I don't buy my ingredients from Italy. So it, everything has to be adapted. And I'm a great proponent of, of an authentic style being the style that belongs to us personally or locally. So, and I'm sure an Italian would come, you know, might go to the Midwest and say it's not Italian food, but they would understand the principles <coughs> and where you were going with it or where, you know, that it is about having local produce. Mm -hmm. And in the same way as that, you know, the, there are a lot of Italians in Australia, you know, because of the diaspora, there's Italians everywhere, and... They don't say, oh, we can't use these ingredients because they didn't grow in the, in the old country. Right. They use what ingredients they can get in Australia or what ingredients they can get in America or wherever, or Argentina, wherever Italians happen to live. And, you know, as we all know, tomatoes are not native to Italy, right. yet we think of them as authentically Italian in, in, in cooking. So um, I'm all for... I'm all for um, blending um, our own personal cultural roots and traditions with Italian food, but it's good to say what you're doing when you do it. So I think in America there's definitely kind of an American-Italian food, probably three times as much sauce and cheese as an yes. Italian would use. Yes, there is, uh, but it's still authentic to America. Yeah. And to uh, I, I, and, uh, I had a... I was in conversation with Mario Batali and he said that he always says, tries to explain when people say, oh, you're, you've got all these Italian restaurants, and he says, well, they, they, they are Italian, but really what they are is New Yorkese. <laughs> and, uh, and he said to me, do you feel your food is uh, uh, London Londonese? I said, yes. So you could say it's Midvestese. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that's allowable. Yeah. What I don't think is right is when people make false claims, but people are always making false claims for, about Italian food. And the amount of times I read that Italians don't use butter, well, no one's ever told an Italian that. Right. <laughs> Is there kind of an English-Italian style that you identify? Well, I do. It's, in a way, because we're so, we are very near Italy, that there are a lot of um, 
and we're a different, slightly different society. So, so what happens in the States, as far as I can see, is that people hold on to their heritage very dearly and identify themselves as Italian-Americans. Whereas all the Italians who came to, and they used to be when I was a child, very much an Italian quarter in London, but, but we're much more of an assimilationist culture. So they are now absolutely English, but we have got many, many... Um, native Italians living in England, so that so in that sense, it is very much um, it is more Italian Italian. Nevertheless, it's still about buying what produce you can get. You can get. And for example, I I uh, translated the Italian pasta with sardines to pasta with mackerel because we're um, the British um, are a mackerel nation rather more than a sardine nation so and I felt that we don't we could we don't grow wild fennel so I use dill uh, and I feel so in that sense that's about adapting to local ingredients okay. so I have to ask the obligatory Chicago question has someone forced a deep dish pizza on you and not this visit but yeah. I have done it <laughs> I have eaten one before and uh, as long as I'm wearing something elasticated which I am now I I um, I eat it with relish and abandon as I eat most things. <laughs> okay, I was wondering because I know uh, your uh, showmate, uh, Mr. Bourdain, uh, despises them utterly. I wonder if he. he would I prefer say... a thin. Yeah. I prefer a thin because it's, n- but it's not that, it's it's that it's too much topping for me. Okay. But I but I think as long as I think of it as, um, I don't think of it as Italian, but I think of it as. A Chicago right. a dish, and I like it. I don't disdain it like he does, but then I'm I'm not a purist, and in, in anyway, it is authentic to Chicago. Well, and it's claimed to belong, you know, to come from something called Scarcietta, Scarcietta, um, but I have my doubts how close I, it really is to no, that. But I feel that different regions of Italy cook so very differently that. Anyway, I don't see why it's inconceivable that some people would cook their their pizza like that. And also, of course, when you know, when Italians cook pizza at home, which they don't very often, it's much more like that than it is. You know, it's only when you've got when you go to a pizzeria that you get the very thin, crisp one. Okay. I mean, I have to say. I feel there's certain things which, you know, may you know we can differentiate between either how we think we like eating them the most, or you know whether we think what we think is good or bad. But I will even take a bad one, and I'm afraid to say, um, I will even a bad even bad fries I can eat. I don't like McDonald's <laughs> and that sort, but I mean proper ones. You know, I like uh-huh. all fries. I like I can I like all pizza. Yeah. I don't. I just you know, and as long as the as long as the dough is cooked, because no, no, uncooked dough is never pleasurable. Right. But I will do it any other sort, and as long as the beer is cold enough, I can you know, it will always be a satisfactory eating experience for me. <laughs> An admirable attitude. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, thank you. I know you have to go on to. Do I? I don't know. I'm, I, do, I do what I'm told <laughs> up just... to a point, don't I, Bill? Up to a point. Um, but no, I. One of the one of the very very um, dispiriting 
uh, things about being on book tour, which I absolutely like, I like meeting readers, is that all events take place at meal times. Right. Um, <laughs> so that I go, you know, I come to cities with incredible food and I just gaze right. as I walk past a window. <laughs> Thanks for listening once again. And thanks to Philip Foss and Akiko Mormon for squeezing me into the food truck. Jeff Ruby for meeting me for lunch. I had no idea he was actually Bruce Wayne. And of course, the lovely Nigella Lawson and the organizers of her book tour at Clarkson Potter. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Links for everything are at skyfullofbacon.com.